Well, let's all just uh, bow together and we'll come before the Lord. Let's all have a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father and our eternal God, we come afresh to Thee. We thank Thee for this day, the day that the Lord has made, the one day in seven set apart. We thank Thee for the privileges that we have of gathering together, of meeting in the Savior's name, of coming around those matters that belong to Thy people, that belong to life and godliness. We approach Thee on redemption ground. We thank Thee for the one who died but who rose again, and as our living head has entered in to the glory above, and there praise for His people. O Lord, we approach Thee through His merit, by the value of the atonement. We look on to Thee afresh. We pray for help as we gather for this Bible study time. We pray, Lord, that Thy hand will be with us, Thy Spirit will move upon our hearts as we consider those things that lie before us on the sacred page. We ask, Lord, for the anointing of the Spirit, for the power of God, for the quickening of the influence of the Spirit. And, Lord, we pray that Thou wilt take us on with Thee in our study, even of this outstanding man of God, Elijah. O Lord, we pray that Thou wilt remember our Sunday school classes also, and our youth Bible classes, bless all who teach. May thy hand be upon every one who brings the word to our young. Lord, remember the entire day that lies ahead of us. We pray that we will have the presence and the power of God and know thy hand upon us as we worship thee, as we meet around the book, as we consider the things of Christ. So abide with us now. Grant us thy help and thy presence. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for His eternal praise and glory. Amen and amen. Turn with me, please, to First Kings once again. I welcome you each one to our Bible class here today, and those online as well. And it's our prayer that the Lord will come and minister unto us. So First Kings chapter 17, and I want to read from verse 1 down to verse number 7 of this chapter. First Kings 17, the verse number 1, let us hear the Word of God. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. And the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Get thee hence, and turn thee eastward and hide thyself by the brook Kerith, that is before Jordan. And it shall be that thou shalt drink the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went and did according unto the word of the Lord, for he went and dwelt by the brook Kerith, that is before Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning, and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And it came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Amen. And the Lord will bless the reading of His Word to our hearts. Now, the opening verse of this chapter is exceedingly important in any study of the life and ministry of this man, Elijah. And we are, of course, giving a, basically an overview of Elijah in these character studies, we've looked at John the Baptist. We now look at Elijah, who really is 
the Old Testament, John the Baptist in many ways because of the parallels between them. But the first verse here is of great importance to us as we think about this man. The verse here records Elijah's sudden appearance on the page of Scripture. He has brought to the reader's attention without any previous mention of him. In that same startling fashion then, he disappears, as it were, from the page of Scripture, as you find in 2 Kings chapter 2. He was suddenly caught up, swiftly caught up, by a whirlwind into heaven. And then, in keeping with that pattern of movement, this sudden appearance and disappearance, he reappears about a thousand years later on the page of Scripture when, he's, when he is seen along with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration when the Lord was transfigured and appeared in His glory for that brief uh, interval during His own earthly ministry. Now, in the opening study on Elijah, I focused your minds on the time of His appearance, spiritually and morally speaking. It was a time of darkness, a time of defiance, a time of despair because of the evil reign of Ahab and Jezebel as they held sway over the northern kingdom of Israel. But amid those wicked times, Elijah was sent by God. It is important to notice that even before Elijah appeared, there were other prophets of God who had ministered and were continuing to minister in those days. Look at chapter 18 for a moment and the verse number 4. 1 Kings 18, 4, it says, For so it was, sorry, for it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took an hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave, and fed them with bread and water. And then go down to verse 13, where Obadiah testifies of this before Elijah. Was it not told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord? how I hid an hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And in these verses, you'll notice that Obadiah speaks of a hundred prophets of God. He had hidden them in two groups of fifty in caves, and thereby he ensured their, 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 their survival. Notice from these same verses that Jezebel had already slain the prophets of the Lord. Go back to verse 4. For it was so when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord. And so there were many more, above and beyond the hundred, who were hidden by Obadiah. There were others who were martyred by this wicked woman Jezebel. And so we find that in that period of great wickedness, the Lord had not left Himself without His witnesses. And this man Elijah is one of those witnesses. He is obviously a chief man among all those who served Jehovah in that particular day. And we are looking, therefore, at some details concerning Elijah just to get a view of this character, this wonderful man of God and the service that he rendered in that day and time. I want to look at it today under three thoughts. Number one, his theology. I've already noted with you that Baal theology taught that Jehovah was dead. 
That's what the Baal prophets were saying, that Jehovah was dead while Baal lived. Now, through Ahab's apostasy uh, from God and also his amalgamation with Jezebel in that unlawful marriage that he entered into with her, Baalism became the official religion of Israel. But in his appearance, that is Elijah's appearance, orthodox theological truth was actually born in his very name. And that was against the system and the theology of Baalism. That theology was incorporated, you see, into the meaning of Elijah's name. His name means, My God is Jehovah. And so as soon as he appeared on the scene of time, there was a message going out. There was a presentation of what this man believed, of his theology, as I've put it. And that's the way to look at it. He comes along with an aim built into which there is this tremendous truth that we are noting here. My God is Jehovah. What a contrast he is with the man who built Jericho. We looked at this two weeks ago in that, that uh, first study on Elijah. You remember the man high? I'll just look back to chapter 16 and verse number 34. And notice what it says there. In his days, that's in Ahab's days, did Hiel the Bethelite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof and, Ab- and Abiram as firstborn and set up the gates thereof and his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord which he spake by Joshua the son of Nun. Hiel is a name that means uh, my God is living. And yet this man built Jericho against the mind of God, against the will of God. And in that sense, He had a name to live, but it was dead. He was not living according to his name. The Bible teaches us this, that when we take the name of Christ upon us, it's not a matter of your personal Christian name or mine, but it's a matter of the Lord's name. When we take the Lord's name upon us, we're to live up to it. We are to display that our God is the true God, that Christ is the only Savior. And so we are to live up to the name that we profess that we take upon ourselves as Christians. And so, when you look at Hiel in contrast with Elijah, both names have wonderful meanings, but it was only Elijah who was living according to or up to his name. My God is Jehovah. And so, in his name, his theology was expressed. Now, in his name was the theology of his salvation. Look at the name again. Think about it. The name Elijah. My God is Jehovah. If you take the first part of his name, it's E-L-I. That actually means my God. You take the second part of his name, which is a a shortened form of Jehovah, the, the part that we see there in Elijah's name, Yah, as it would actually be pronounced, and that means Jehovah. And we'll look at that in a moment or two, but just take Uh, the first part of his name, this uh, name El, which means God, and then uh, add it to the little uh, little, uh, word or the little letter I, my God. And what he's saying is, I have a God. I love my God. I have a relationship with him. My trust is in the true God. That's really what the first part of his name actually means. 
And then the rest of his name, which says Jehovah follows on, and Jehovah is the covenant name of God. And it's from that name Jehovah that we get the Lord Jesus Christ's name, the name Jesus, because the name Jesus means Savior, just as Jehovah actually refers to God as the Savior of His people. So, there's a lot in a name, we often say, and there's a lot in Elijah's name. Notice what he goes on to say here in verse number 1 of this chapter. It says, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, and just note that, he's saying, My God is Jehovah. Then he goes on to say, The Lord God, that is Jehovah God of Israel, liveth. That's a testimony of his theology in a nutshell. Remember, I've said to you, those who worship Baal were presenting the lie that Jehovah was dead. Elijah appears on the scene, and he says, My God, the Lord God of Israel, is alive. And my dear friend, that's a testimony that needs to go out today, or that's a theology that needs to go out today, that God is not dead that God is alive. And how do we show it? We show it by how we live. We show it by what we believe. We show it by how we behave. We show it by obeying God's law. We show it by living a holy life. We show our theology by lifting up the name of Jesus Christ, that name that comes from Jehovah, which means God saves or Jehovah saves, and that's the name Jesus that was given to our blessed Savior when He was born. As you read in Matthew 1, 21, Thou shalt call His name Jesus, for He shall save His people from their sins. Notice something more here in verse 1. He says, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand. Before whom I stand. Every word there is important. Every sense of that a little Part of the verse is very important. Before whom I stand. He's saying, I have a standing before Jehovah God. He's saying, therefore, I'm accepted by Him. I can stand before Him. I can appear before Him. I know that on the ground of the promised Redeemer, I have a standing, and before Him I stand. Something like what Martin Luther said, Here I stand. I can do no other. And that's essentially what Elijah is doing here. He's saying, Ahab, Jezebel, your prophets, you're all saying that God is dead, but I'm here to pronounce that He's alive, and He's my God, He's my Savior, and before Him I stand accepted, and I am pardoned by Him, and my sins are gone. And so there's the theology in uh, Elijah's name, the theology of his salvation. He can say before this God, the true God, the living God, Jehovah God, I stand. And you see, on that basis, he was enabled to face and confront Ahab. This was no easy thing. As soon as Elijah appeared in uh, Ahab's court, wherever it actually took place, in terms of a location, we don't really know, but Say it was Samaria itself, that's where the king of the northern kingdom reigned, that's where his seat was, and perhaps that's where Elijah came. But anyway, he's before the man who's persecuting the saints. 
He's before the man whose wife has slain already many, many of the prophets of God. Is, is Elijah there just in bluster? Is he there to put on a show? Is he there trying to make himself out to be some kind of a big fella? No, men and women. He's there as a mere man who realizes that his life is in danger. That at any moment Ahab or Jezebel could give the command and Elijah would be slaughtered. But he comes along and he says, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, and then goes on to deliver the rest of his uh, message here. We'll come to that a little later. So there is part of his theology, the theology of his salvation. But then there's also in his name the theology of his separation. Because the meaning of Elijah's name was the declaration that he stood separate from the apostasy of Baal worship. In effect, Elijah was saying to Ahab, your God is Baal, my God is Jehovah. He says here, the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. And therefore he was clearly declaring that he was standing separate from the false religion that had infiltrated the life of the nation of Israel. Notice the other part of his name there in verse 1, Elijah the Tishbite. I referred to that two weeks ago when I looked at this verse on that occasion. And the word Tishbite is simply a reference to an area or a part of Gilead, uh, which was a major region in the land, and there was this little place called Tishbe. And from that you get the word Tishbite as you have it here. But the word Tishbite means stranger. Stranger. And so what Elijah was saying, or what has actually been said in his name is, this matter in his name, not only is there the theology of his salvation, but there's the, the theology of his separation. He comes as the Tishbite, and he's really declaring I'm a stranger to the system and to the worship of Baal. I'm separate from it. His full name declared that he would have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of the darkness of the worship of Baal or any other heathen, pagan deity. And so the detail underlines the clear separatist position that Scripture identifies, which is to be followed by the Lord's people. We are to be strangers here in the sense of standing apart. That's what the word stranger means in the Bible. The Lord says to His people, you are strangers, you are sojourners, you are pilgrims in this old world. Now, we live in the world, and we have to make our way through it in the sense of, well, bringing up a family or having a business or running our earthly affairs, that's all legitimate. That's all very biblical, actually. But at the same time, God's people are to be like Elijah. They are to see themselves as strangers here, because the child of God is not accepted. You see, Elijah was not accepted by Ahab. We'll see that a little more shortly, but he was not accepted by Ahab. Ahab hated this man. And he hated him for his theology. 
He hated him because in his very name there's a reminder to Ahab of the true God from whom he had turned, from whom he had apostatized. And in his very name there was this also that Elijah was a separatist. He's saying to Ahab, I am not going to worship Baal. I'm not going to go with the tide. I'm going to swim against the stream. That's really what he's saying as he comes and he stands before uh, this this wicked man Ahab. This is the theology that he presents in his very appearance in the name that he bore. And the immediate effect of that testimony or that stand that he took when he came along and his theology was clearly known and what he believed was presented was that Elijah was characterized as the troubler of Israel. Turn to chapter 18 again and look at verse 17. It says in verse 17, And it came to pass, this is at the time when Elijah uh, confronts Ahab at Mount Carmel, or it's leading into that. So, verse 17 of chapter 18, It came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. And then look at chapter 21 and verse 20, just to get another uh, aspect of this. 1 Kings 21, verse number 20. And there it says, Ahab said to Elijah, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? This is at the time when Ahab has set his heart on getting Naboth's vineyard. And to get it, Jezebel concocts that evil plan of having Naboth murdered and all his sons murdered, by the way. You find that in the Scriptures concerning this whole event. And then Ahab confronts Elijah. As he went down to take the vineyard, Ahab confronts him. And here's what Ahab says, Hast thou found me, O mine enemy? And he answered, I have found thee, because thou hast sold thyself to work evil in the sight of the Lord. But just for the purposes of seeing uh, Elijah's theology, he stands before Ahab, he declares who he is, the very name that he bears, the area from which he comes, Tishba, declares that he's a separatist. And for that reason, Ahab refers to Elijah as the one who's troubling Israel. What Ahab meant by that was, we're going to come into that now in a moment or two, but just to set up the scene. What Ahab meant by that was, Elijah was the one whom he claims is responsible for there being no rain. And there is no rain at this point. And there will be be no rain for a, a little while. And so Ahab blames Elijah for that, when all the while Ahab was to blame. Ahab calls Elijah the troubler of Israel because Ahab stood up for God and God had said there would be no rain. And God withheld the rain, but the man of God is blamed. My dear friend, there is such an up-to-date parallel there in so many ways. Because those who stand up for the Lord today, who stand up for God's law, who stand up for the commandments, who are against abortion, 
who are against sodomy. They're called the troublers of the land. They're the ones who are looked on as being the problem. That's the way it is. It always has been that way. It always will be. You see, there's a price to pay in serving the Lord or standing up for Him, declaring what you believe, declaring your position, that you, in your theology, you believe that the Lord alone is the only way of salvation, that in your theology you believe that you are to be a separated Christian and not go along with the world in the way it thinks, the way it behaves, the way it uh, goes about things. It's wickedness, how you sum it up, you, you must declare that and you must stand separate from that if you are going to be true to the Lord like Elijah. And for that you will get no acclaim. You'll get no well-dones. You'll get the very opposite. You'll be called the troublemaker. You'll be called the enemy. And of course we know that's a misrepresentation of the true Christian because a true Christian is endeavoring to stand up for the Lord and His name and His glory and His law and His truth, His holiness. But do that, and you will be blamed like Elijah was blamed for all the trouble there is in the land. You know, you'll hear people saying, if there was no religion, there would be no trouble. And of course, really who they're getting at there is those who believe the religion of the Bible. And therefore, we learn much here about this man Elijah, and we learn much as far as we ourselves are concerned. So we have his theology. But then we have, secondly, his tidings. Look at verse 1 again of chapter 17. And here are Elijah's tidings at the end of the verse, the message he brought. There shall not be dew nor rain these years but according to my word. And so when he suddenly appeared before Ahab, he immediately delivered the tidings or the message of great solemnity. There shall not be dew or rain these years, but according to my word. In other words, he's delivering tidings of judgment on the nation. That's it in a nutshell. That's what he's saying. Because in the eastern land, Middle East, where Israel's located, they need all the rain they can get. And it's true now as it was true then. And it's true in many other parts of the world. And so for Elijah to come along and say, deliver these tidings, no rain, Ahab, that was a solemn announcement. That would have brought dread to Ahab's heart when he heard those words. Because you see, Ahab had a mental knowledge of what God had said. He must have had because he was an Israelite and he was brought up in that way. And Ahab knew better. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy and I'll show you what I mean. Deuteronomy, please. And if you look at Deuteronomy, uh, well, there are a few places we could look for time's sake. We'll just turn to chapter 11 of Deuteronomy and look at verse number 17. Deuteronomy 11. Well, we'll read it verse 13 to begin with. So if you've got your Bible open there, Deuteronomy 11, verse 13, it shall come to pass 
If ye shall hearken diligently unto my commandments, which I command you this day, to love the Lord your God, to serve Him with all your heart, with all your soul, all your soul, that I will give you the rain of your land in its due season, the first rain and the latter rain, that thou mayest gather in thy corn and thy wine and thine oil. And I will send grass in thy fields for thy cattle, that thou mayest eat and be full. Take heed to yourselves, that your heart be not deceived, and ye turn aside and serve other gods and worship them, and then the Lord's wrath be kindled against you, and he shut up the heaven that there be no rain. And so here was a clear warning given through Moses in his days and written here in the book of Deuteronomy. You may know that the name Deuteronomy for this book means the second law. What the name signifies is that this was the second time. What you have in Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law of God, the moral law of God. The Ten Commandments are recited again in the book of Deuteronomy, and they are enlarged on, and they are, they are set out in great clarity. So that's the meaning of the book, or the name. Deuteronomy comes from Greek, the second law. And in God's law, He laid down again to Israel, Obey me, and I'll bless you. There's always blessing when you obey God, but there's no blessing when you don't obey God. If a land turns away from God, if a nation turns away from God, as our nation has done, then we should not be surprised that things don't go well. Now, in our case, it's not a scarcity of rain. And that's not the only thing the Lord said He would do, that is, withhold the rain. He said other things in His Word about what He would do to chastise a people who turn away from Him. He would bring enemies against them. He would bring disease upon them. The Lord says this over and over in His Word. Because, my friend, sin is the cause of every calamity that man ever has to face. Whether it's floods, too much rain, or no rain in terms of a dearth, or a scorching heat, or sickness, or disease, or whatever, we find it's all traced back to man's disobedience. And so God had said in His Word, in this matter of there being no rain, that it would come to that such a point when Israel would turn away from him. And the Lord said, I will shut heaven, and there will be no rain. Now, Elijah knew God's Word. If you turn back, please, to 1 Kings 17. He knew God's Word. And so that explains what he's saying here at the end of verse 1. It says, There shall not be dew nor rain these years. Just take your mind Deuteronomy 11, it's all there. Elijah knew that verse, if you want to put it that way. And when he says, but according to my word, what he means is, what God ha has revealed is what I believe. Therefore, it is my word in that sense. It's just the same as Paul writing in the New Testament and referring to God's gospel as my gospel. You see, Whenever the gospel grips your heart and saves your life and your soul, it's your gospel. It has worked on you. It has embraced you. 
You've come to know it and love it and serve it and so on and delight in it, so it's your gospel. And Elijah, he delighted in God's law, and so does the true Christian. The true believer says, Thy law is within my heart. See, God puts His law into us. This is, the, this is the vital thing. There are those today who call themselves Christians, and they'll say, you know, I don't see anything wrong with same-sex marriage. I don't see anything wrong with an abortion, because it's really only a, a bundle of cells that have no life anyway, and they're, they're just uh, they're, 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 they're abortions. My dear friend, anybody who calls himself or herself a Christian and says the like of that, is denying what Christianity is. Because Christianity is a system that upholds the law of God and rejoices in the fact that Christ has fulfilled that law on our behalf, but at the same time wants to live by that law and according to that law. That's true Christianity. And anything else is a counterfeit. It's of the devil. Got to get a hold of that. And so, Elijah felt the power of God's law in his own soul. And that's why he says, according to my word. But there's more to it than that. This means that Elijah actually had prayed that there wouldn't be any rain. And that seems quite a strong thing to say. And yet, isn't that what James tells us? James 5, verse 17, it says this, James 5, 17, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. I let that sink in. He prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And therefore, in the light of God's Word from Deuteronomy, Elijah had prayed that there would be no rain. And he stands before Ahab in 1 Kings 17.1, and he declares, There shall not be dew or rain or rain these years, but according to my Word. Notice the terms there. This is actually very interesting. He says, There shall not be dew or rain these years. These years. Now turn to chapter 18, verse 1. It came to pass after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year and said, or saying, Go show thyself unto Ahab and I will send rain upon the earth. So, chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah says, there won't be any rain these years. Then you come to chapter 18, verse 1, and we're now into the third year. And so, what you find is that after Elijah's first appearance to Ahab, in chapter 17, verse 1, there had been no rain. And that went on for a number of years, namely three years. But here's the interesting thing. When Elijah came before Ahab in chapter 17, verse 1, the drought had been going on for six months. 
You say, how do you know that? Well, I want to show you. Turn to, to Luke chapter 4 and look at verse number 25. Luke 4, 25. And there the Lord Jesus is speaking, and He says this, But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, that's Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. And then turn to that passage in James, James 5 and verse 17. James 5, 17, Elias was a man, that's Elijah, subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. So both Christ and James refer to a period of three years and six months. So how do we understand this? Well, the explanation is this. I just mentioned it there. I'll go over it again. When Elijah first appeared to Ahab, there already had been a period of six months of drought. The six months that the Lord mentions. The six months that James mentions. That already had come. And then Elijah says, there will be no rain these years. In other words, he's saying there are some years to come, Ahab. Already has been six months of no rain, but it's going to continue now for a period of years, and the Bible makes it clear it was for three more years. And that's what chapter 18.1 is really saying. It says there, after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year. So the third year has come, the six months led into the three years, and now the period of drought is almost at an end. Now, here's the point, folks. These were the tidings that Elijah brought to Ahab. This is the message that he brings. He doesn't bring it out of spite. Elijah's not an angry man. I'm sure he delivered those tidings with, with deep feeling, with a consciousness of what this was going to mean for the whole nation. And I'll say more about that a little later with regard to the man himself if I have any time left here. But he wouldn't have done this lightly. But he had to do it because he knew the Word of God. He longed to see God move. He longed to see Baal worship driven out. He longed to see a great awakening. He wanted to see God working. And therefore he prayed there would be no rain. Because God had said, if you turn away from me, I will withhold the rain and I'll shut heaven. And Elijah asked God to do what he had said he would do, all in order to bring the nation to its knees. The lesson is this. Elijah preferred national calamity to national apostasy and God's final judgment. I think you would prefer the same, wouldn't you? You would rather see the Lord's name honored and glorified through the Lord sending some kind of a chastisement or a judgment 
to awaken the nation and bring the people to repentance rather than to see the nation go into final judgment. It would seem that Israel, prior to the drought, seemed prior to that drought coming, all was well regarding the nation's physical and material welfare. I think we see something about this. If you go back to chapter 18, verse number 5, it says, Ahab said unto Obadiah, Go into the land, unto all fountains of water, and unto all brooks. Peradventure we may find grass to save the horses and mules alive, that we lose not all the beasts. So you, you learn from that verse that in Israel's uh, status in terms of, of agriculture and so forth, she had had horses and mules and beasts. And now there are some still left. And so that means that before the drought ever came, yes, the drought already has impacted things. Some have died, these beasts, but some are still alive. But the inference is that before the drought came, they had plenty of horses and plenty of mules and plenty of beasts, animals in general. That means they had plenty of grass. That means they had plenty of rain leading right up to this. And that means that everything apparently was well. You see, when everything apparently is well in a nation, people just drift along. Because things seem to be secure financially or commercially, people are in a stupor. They, they don't see that there's any need to be alarmed. We're doing well, and we're going to have the budget this week, and, and maybe we'll get some kind of a respite out of that, and, and that's the way they think, and that's the way they live. And you know, if we're all honest, we all live that way. Nobody in his right mind wants a famine. Nobody in his right mind wants to, the nation to collapse and fall apart altogether. Commercially, financially, that will bring hard times, harder than we might already have. My dear friend, we have to weigh things up. What will it take to awaken the people? What will it take? And the Bible's showing us the answer to that. Now, we have to pray wisely over this. But we can pray this, Lord, Deal with the hearts of your people. Chasten them. Chasten us. Bring us to our senses as Christians. Help us to see the way things are. Deal with society around us. Bring the nation to its knees, Lord. In whatever way you see fit to do that, that we might be delivered from ruin altogether. And so, here's Elijah's theology, and here's Elijah's tidings. Then, closing, my last point was his testing, Elijah's testing, because in chapter 17, verse number 2, it says, The word of the Lord come unto him, saying, Get thee hence, turn thee eastward, hide thyself by the brook Kareth, that is before Jordan, and so on. And so, immediately upon facing Ahab, God told Elijah to go to this place.
place called the Brook Kerith, this brook, this river, whatever size it may have been, we don't really know, but he was told to go there and, and hide there. Now, that was a test for Elijah. He was to undergo a period of testing to prepare him for future ministry. There were two aspects to the testing that the Lord put Elijah through uh, in sending him to the brook Kerith. There was the test regarding the river. He was going to, to go to this brook, a river. He was to drink of its waters. But look at, look at verse 7. It came to pass after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. And so Elijah's under a test. Test it regarding this river, this brook called Kerith. The brook dried up because there had been no rain. What I see from that, what you need to see from that is that Elijah had to endure the chastisement of God along with the rest of Israel. You see, if you take our own little country, and we've had a very wet winter, and the land is sodden, but Christian farmers have to face that too, along with maybe unsafe farmers. Now, in my lifetime, I go back to my boyhood, even when I was a teenager, if you dared go out into the field on Sunday to do anything, you were a disgrace. But there's no disgrace anymore. And even farmers who claim to be Christians are out on their fields on Sundays, cutting their silage and cutting their barley and spreading their slurry. It's any wonder that rather than the Lord withholding the rain, He has sent a deluge. But the point is, Christians have to take that along with the rest. And the Bible makes that very, very clear. Christians don't escape hardship. They don't escape testing times because we have our sins and we have need to repent. He was tested regarding the river, and then he was tested regarding the ravens. Look at verse 4. It shall be that thou shalt drink the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. And then verse number 6, the ravens brought him bread and flesh in the morning and bread and flesh in the evening, and he drank of the brook. And so the Lord informed Elijah that he would provide for him by means of the ravens. Now, they were very unlikely instruments. A raven. They were voracious eaters themselves. And so here are these ravens carrying in their beaks, and they've got big beaks, carrying Elijah every day, morning and evening, bread and flesh. Why did they not eat it themselves? You see, God told Elijah, the ravens will feed you. They'll bring you bread and flesh morning and evening. And you have to accept the fact that Elijah must have wondered at that. These birds, what unlikely instruments, because of their own voracious appetites. And yet, mysteriously, they carried out their duty. The Lord says there in verse 4, I have commanded the ravens. That's a remarkable statement. 
because instead of devouring the bread and flesh themselves, they brought it to Elijah. What's the explanation for this? God overruled their instinctive inclination to eat the bread and meat themselves, and they brought it to Elijah. That's what it means. God has control over all creation. He could cause those unlikely providers to do what He wanted to happen for Elijah. The other thing is, they not only were unlikely instruments, they were unclean instruments. The raven is characterized as an unclean bird in the Bible. It simply means that as a way of God teaching Israel distinction between moral and spiritual, either cleanness or uncleanness. He used these things. I haven't much more time than that to say any more about that, but the first mention of the raven in the Bible is in Genesis 8, verse 7. Noah sent out a raven onto the ruined earth, but the raven was at home there. He sent out the dove, which is a clean bird. It came back to the ark. Why did the raven not come back? Because the raven felt at home in the scenes of devastation caused by the flood. And yet this is the very bird that God uses to feed Ahab, or to feed Elijah. I would suggest to you why he did that is this. Remember, it's an unclean bird. He was testing Elijah and also teaching Elijah, I'm in charge of Ahab and Jezebel. You see, my friend, in Revelation, the Lord refers to evil people as a cage of unclean birds. And that's what we're seeing typified here. Elijah has been told by God that Ahab and Jezebel in all their uncleanness, morally and spiritually, are under his control. And so, that was a great test for Elijah, but God taught him a lot in it. I, I wish I had more time this morning. We'll have to leave it here. But may God write His Word in all our hearts and help us to understand these things. And may He bless His truth to us. Let us just bow together and we'll have a word of prayer. Lord, we give Thee thanks for Thy Word, for what it shows us. We pray that Thou wilt help us to dwell in the Word and and know it and understand it and, and be taught by it. Be with us today. Bless the morning meeting coming up. Bless thy servant who will preach. May help be given from heaven. May thy name be glorified far, far above, above everything else. Here as we pray, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.